the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we looked at Psalm 1 and how Psalm 1 functions as an introduction to the Psalter. Psalm 1 gives us a vision of the blessed man, the the one who Israel was called to be, the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but who delights and meditates on the law of the Lord. And we saw how how Jesus is, the, the tree planted by streams of water, the one who prospers in all that he does. But what we didn't spend much time on last week was how Psalm 1 connects with Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2 is also a part of it. It's basically a two-part introduction to the Psalter. Psalm 1 set forth the contrast between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Psalm 1 reminds us of the coming judgment of God. Psalm 2 moves us beyond the, the pastoral imagery of, of the tree and of chaff, all the, all the agricultural imagery, and moves to the royal imagery of the king, the courts of Zion, the decree of God. When we, when we sing Psalm 1, we hear it often in very general terms. Oh, blessed is the man. Well, that could refer to anyone. Now, Psalm 2 plainly refers to the one man, the anointed king, the one who sits enthroned in in Zion. But when you see how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 connect, you start to see that truly the anointed king, the Messiah, is the blessed man of Psalm 1. And as Psalm 2 ends, it says, blessed are all who put their trust in him. And so you start to see, how do we become the blessed man of Psalm 1? It's by putting our trust in the anointed king of Psalm 2. The blessed one, the blessed ones of us, the plural, blessed are all, points how we become the blessed man. We become the blessed one of Psalm 1 through our trusting in the king, the Lord's anointed of Psalm 2. And... Psalm 2 starts by asking a question, and this question provides the backdrop, really, for the whole psalm, and one could argue for the whole psalter. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The psalmist is writing this at a time when Israel was was called to be a kingdom of priests. Israel was supposed to mediate the blessings of God to the nations, But if you know anything about Old Testament history, you know the nations aren't very interested in receiving God's blessings. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. The nations are not coming to Jerusalem, beating down the door to hear the word of the Lord. The nations are coming to Jerusalem, beating down the door to destroy the Lord's anointed king. But the psalmist understands that 
the Davidic king, the one who sits on David's throne, is the embodiment of Israel. All that God has promised to Israel is going to be fulfilled by their anointed king. God laughs at the enemies of Israel because he has established his son in Zion. And the dominion of the son of David will extend to the whole earth. Our New Testament lesson comes from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, hear now the word of our God. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the, t- of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they, the apostles, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. 
the apostles realize that Psalm 2 is all about Jesus. The scheming of the nations against the Lord and his anointed had happened in Jerusalem. You might think, you know, why do the heathen nations rage? I mean, the, the, word, the word heathen is added by the, 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 for poetry in the hymn, but when you go back to Psalm 2, the assumption of Psalm 2 is that these are heathen nations. The assumption is these are the, the Goyim, these are those nations out there. In Psalm 2, the assumption is that the son of David sits on the throne in Jerusalem, the Davidic king. So this would never happen in Jerusalem. Uh, Right. Book 1 of the Psalms has a lot of songs about enemies and troubles and how things are, are not the way they should be. And you know how this goes. At work, is everything going the way it should be? In your school, is everything going the way it should be? And then you come home, and things are not the way they should be. It gets really frustrating until you look in the mirror and then realize, oh, I'm not the way I should be either. I'd like to think that I'm the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but all of us follow those voices, hear those voices, and wind up drifting that way. I'm not the way I should be. Where is my refuge? Where is my hope? In whom can I trust? Psalm 1's glowing meditation on the blessedness of the blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night gives way to Psalm 2's reminder that the wicked don't give up so easily. Verses 1 to 3 portray the nations raging against the Lord and his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. Yeah, the picture's that of the Davidic king in Jerusalem as the Son of God. God had declared in Exodus 4, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And he promised to give his son an inheritance in the promised land. And now in the promised land, God has set up the nation of Israel to be the embodiment of the kingdom of God. There's a way in which at the end of Deuteronomy, you have this, this picture that the Pentateuch has come full circle. Adam and Eve started off in the garden in Eden. And now, as Israel comes back to the promised land, you have a new son of God who is coming to the new garden, who's coming, and you know, will, will Israel succeed where Adam failed? Well, even by the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, you're not going to succeed. You're going to fail, and God's going to send you into exile. So before they even get into the promised land, okay, this isn't going to be the answer. This isn't the solution. So after Israel's failure God calls David, and there's a way in which David is called to succeed where Israel failed. But, once again, as, and that's, but actually, before I get to the once again, it's important to say, when God called David to sit on his throne and said, I have found a man after my own heart, the picture here was important and valuable and, and you can see in Psalm 2 how much it meant. When they sang Psalm 2, they weren't just thinking, oh, someday God will put a king in Jerusalem. They were singing it because God had put a king in Jerusalem. We, we sometimes think of, oh, back in the Old Testament, all they had were types and shadows. From their perspective, we have types and shadows. 
We have, we have the picture. We have, this is the beginning of what God is doing in bringing salvation to the earth. It's really easy for us to get to the, and then look at how they failed. Psalm 2 is not about how they failed. Psalm 2 is about every, we don't know exactly when it was sung. I mean, it, some people think this could have been sung at the enthronement of the king, that every time the next Davidic king takes the throne, they'd sing Psalm 2. Could be. But they wouldn't have to wait for that. They could sing this every single day when there's a, a Davidic king sitting on the throne. That as they sing about how God had chosen the son of David to rule over his kingdom, and since the kingdom of God extends ultimately over all nations, they would sing about how this provincial backwater king was actually the most powerful king in the world. Because quite frankly, they knew full well the, the United Kingdom of Judah and Israel was a pretty small player in world politics. To sing Psalm 2 took amazing faith. Jerusalem never looked like the center of world politics. There's never a time in Old Testament history. Some of you have heard me lecture on, on the, the, the Bronze Age collapse and how there is this amazing moment when, when there's actually room for a, a little kingdom to become something in the ancient world. God arranges all of history in such a way that there's this moment when David can arise. Thanks be to God, he gave them that picture. But even then, Jerusalem was still a little two-bit city. David and his son Solomon, all of Solomon's glory, compared to anything that the pharaohs of Egypt had, compared to anything Babylon had, Podunk little town. But God had said to David that he would establish his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Those who first sang Psalm 2 may not have understood how their king would inherit the nations, but they believed his promises. And so they sang Psalm 2. The nations rage and mock. Why? Because the nations can't imagine how the podunk little king could possibly resist them. That's why in Acts 4, they spoke of how Herod and Pilate and the chief priests were set on destroying the Christ. And they had all the power. Who could possibly stop them? They have the power of what little power Israel had combined with what massive power Rome had. And and here's this little upstart who calls himself the Messiah. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. See, when you start thinking the way the world thinks, you would never, ever get Jesus. You would never, ever get a king who triumphs over his enemies by dying. would never happen. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision because they don't understand how he does things. Hebrews 1 explains why the king is called the son of God. Uh, Hebrews 1 will, will quote Psalm 2 when it, and 
when Hebrews 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then, and to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? At what point did God declare of Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you? You might think of the baptism of Jesus, where God declares, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. But that's not the moment that Hebrews is talking about. Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. It's about when does the king sit down on his throne. When Hebrews quotes Psalm 2, Hebrews is thinking of the ascension of Christ. When Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, he is enthroned as king in a way that he was not before. Oh, sure. In one sense, Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, was always, as God, king over all creation. But God has always been king over all creation. There's nothing unique about that. When did Jesus become king over creation in a way that he hadn't been before? Well, he came in his incarnation, joined himself to our humanity, and in so doing, became the rightful king. And you see his adoption into Joseph's family, which gives him, he's in the line of David now, so he's, he's now able to inherit the throne as the son of David. And you see how in his baptism, he is, he is anointed by God for the ministry that he's called to. But at this point, he is, he is the king who has come, But he has not yet been enthroned. He has not yet sat down. This is where, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When is Jesus sitting on Zion, God's holy hill? It's when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, which is what Zion was pointing to in the first place. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, he was enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, the gospel of God concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of God, where he sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high, that is the enthronement of the king. When Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, he is now king, not merely because he's been God from all eternity, but also because as man, he has now done precisely all that was promised to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, to David. Everything has come true in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, not just in his divinity, but also in his humanity. And as the Son of God, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness through his resurrection from the dead. And in his ascension, God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And this matters to us because Jesus has been given dominion over the nations. You see, in verse 7 in Psalm 2, now Jesus speaks. Now the Christ, the anointed one, speaks. I will tell of the decree 
the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is, again, this, it's, this, is, not, this is not referring to, he was the begotten of the Father in, according to his divinity from all eternity. What's the today? The today is when Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. This is where, when he sits down at the right hand of the Father, just like if you think about for the Davidic king in the Old Testament, the son of David, when Solomon is seated on the throne of David, was, was Solomon the son of David before he sat down on the throne? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's a way in which he becomes the son of David when he's enthroned in a way that he wasn't son of David before. Because David had many sons. Which son is going to be the son of David? In other words, the king. You get to be the son of David by sitting on your father's throne. It's when you're enthroned that you become the son of David as opposed to simply a son of David. And there's a way in which when Jesus sits down at the right hand of the majesty, he becomes the son of God in a way that he hadn't been before. He was the son of God according to his divinity. He was the son of God according to his humanity. But he wasn't yet the son of God in terms of sitting on the throne and ruling the nations with a rod of iron, which is what was promised to the son of God. And that's precisely what the Lord now says, the Lord Jesus now says, as he says, the Lord, my father, said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, it's, it's not obvious from the Old Testament how all this was going to take place. They might have thought, many seem to have thought, that God was going to give his king amazing military victories and establish his kingdom. That itty-bitty Israel would rise up and subdue Egypt and Babylon and, and India and China. And Really? Is that how it's going to happen? The apostles understand very clearly what Psalm 2 means. Because that's how they use it in Acts 4. The rebellion of the nations against the Lord and his anointed came to its climax in the crucifixion of Jesus. The raging of the Gentiles, the plots of the peoples are boiled down in verses 27 and 28. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel all combined against the Lord and against his anointed. And now we see even the earthly Jerusalem and the rulers of Jerusalem have become part of the heathen nations. They're just as much unclean as the Gentiles because they have rebelled against the Lord and His Holy One. And because Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Christ, we must understand that the plots of the nations have to do with Christ and His kingdom. Notice how they apply Psalm 2 in Acts 4, verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They look at this and say, since the nations raged against Christ, they will also rage against us. But just as Jesus was exalted, so also we have confidence that God will vindicate us. He will vindicate us because the anointed one, Jesus, the Son of God, indeed rules the nations with a rod of iron. Now, 
What does that phrase mean? What does it mean for the anointed one, for Christ, to rule the nations with a rod of iron? There are three times in the book of Revelation where it describes what this looks like. In Revelation 12.5, it speaks of, of how the woman gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And then in Revelation 19, it describes Christ's final coming, that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The resurrected, exalted Christ is the one who will judge the nations. So ruling with a rod of iron is, is portrayed in terms of the coming judgment. So it would make sense for us to say, ah, all of this is what Jesus does, so that has, the, the ruling with a rod of iron has nothing to do with us. But wait, I did say there were three references in Revelation. That other one, Actually, it's the first one in the book. It's Revelation 2.27. And this is Jesus speaking. In Jesus, as he's speaking to the seven churches. As he speaks to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says to the one who conquers in my name, to him, I will give authority over the nations. Okay. I, Jesus, will give him, the, the one who conquers in my name, authority over the nations, and he, the believer in Jesus who, who conquers in the name of Christ, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Ruling the nations with a rod of iron, breaking pots into pieces, is not just something Jesus does at the end of history and we have nothing to do with it. This is part of what we are doing as the people of God. So, you know, this is not, there, there is simply no way to take Revelation 2.27 as speaking about Jesus because Jesus is the one saying it to us. Those who endure. Now, the, uh, the key to understanding this is even as I myself have received authority from my Father, how did Jesus receive authority from his father? How did Jesus triumph over those who were plotting against him and his father? The cross. How do we overcome the nations? Is it through rising up? Oh, rod of iron, that sounds good. Let me grab my sword. No. Those who endure through suffering, believing in the faithful promises of God, will rule the nations with a rod of iron, just as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is something that Psalm 2 says the anointed Son of God will do. It's something Revelation says the exalted Christ will do. And if you are united to Christ, then all that is His is yours. And as we see throughout the Scriptures, that includes being joined to the likeness of his suffering, that you might also be joined to the likeness of his resurrection power. You will exercise the authority of Christ in judging the nations. Because if you are, I mean, Jesus now calls us brothers. If he is the Son of God, then we now become sons of God in him. And 
I know some people like to say sons and daughters, but uh, Scripture uses sons in this way, and that's where. But you know, and you know me well enough. You know, I I I, I play fair. I call women sons, and I call men wives, because we're the bride of Christ. If we're all the bride of Christ, we're all sons of God. Uh, this isn't this isn't some sort of like gender bending. This is simply the way Scripture talks about us. We are sons of God in Jesus Christ, and we are the bride of Christ. So it's good stuff. It's just, actually, we'll be looking more at this tonight in the Leviticus, the, the, the Levitical woman. There's great, great stuff there. But, um, but what are we doing with the authority of Christ? How do we exercise this? What, what does this do now? Paul actually deals with this question in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. When there's a dispute in the church in Corinth, Paul asks, if you're going to judge angels someday, and you're like, wait, 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 huh? What? Yeah. Now, Paul doesn't go ahead and explain all the details of that, but you're going to judge angels. If, you're, if you, you can ask me all the questions you want, I'm just going to say it's what Paul says. But, but Paul's point is, if you're going to judge angels, then how much more should you be able to handle small matters? How much more should you be able to handle the ordinary things of life? As kings as those who are in King Jesus, how do you wield Christ's authority? Are you selfishly seeking your own glory? Are you trying to establish your own little empire? Christ wielded the authority of his Father for your sake. And now you have been given the authority of Christ so that you might use it on his behalf and give glory to him. We recently went through the Ten Commandments using the larger catechism's exposition, and I really like question 130 of our larger catechism when it asks, what are the sins of superiors? The, the sins of superiors are, besides the neglect of the duties required of them, an inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure. Where do we go wrong? We try to use authority for our own benefit and seek our own glory, our own ease, our own profit, our own pleasure. It also, we also sin when we command things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors, those under our charge to perform. We sin by counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil. We sin in dissuading, discouraging, or discountenancing them in that which is good. We sin when we correct them unduly. We sin when we carelessly expose them or leave them to wrong temptation and danger. And we don't think about those under our care and we put them into a situation that they're not ready for. They shouldn't be able to, have to handle, handle that. We sin by provoking them to wrath. That's practically a direct quote from fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. Or, and this is a curious one, or anyway dishonoring themselves. Superiors sin when they dishonor themselves. What does that mean? Anyway, dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. When, when we use our authority for our own benefit, one of the things that happens is we dishonor ourselves. We 
And that's where the point of the authority that Christ has given you in whatever position you're in. And I mean, even, even you little children, you still find yourself in a situation where you're in a position of authority. When you're the sort of the big kid in the room. When you're the one who has a, you know, and you know what the right thing to do is. When you are in a situation where you, you actually can do something, you dishonor yourself when you use that authority improperly. Because the proper use of authority is for the good of others. When you use your authority unjustly, improperly, you dishonor yourself, you harm others, and for that matter, you lie about God because as a person in authority, you represent him in your words and actions. Good rulers will reflect Christ well. Bad rulers won't. And so the psalmist says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. This, in fact, would call us back to Psalm 1 if you want to say, what does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to serve the Lord with fear? How can I kiss the Son? Well, remember what he said. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but who delights in the law of the Lord. The blessed man is the one who takes refuge in the Son of God. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We heard last week that the blessed man is the one who delights in God's law. Now we hear the blessed man is the one who serves the Lord with fear and rejoices with trembling. For the kingdom of God has been established by his Son, our Lord Jesus, and his throne endures forever. His judgment endures forever. Do you fear the Lord Jesus? Well, then... Kiss the sun. The picture there is submit, submit yourself to his rule. It's what Peter and John declared in Acts 4.11 when, when they said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. You can seek all over the earth and you will find there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Do not put your hope in princes. Do not trust in politicians. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shows that our confidence in princes is idolatry. Don't trust in earthly rulers, but take refuge in the Lord. Take refuge in his anointed because you are called to walk in the way of the righteous. And as we realize that we fall short, that things are not the way they should be, we are not the way we should be. We need to. Hope in Jesus. If you haven't put your hope and trust in Jesus, I urge you, do it today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's what our fathers did in the rebellion. That's what Israel did when Jesus stood before them. It's worth noting that all through history, you go back to Cain and Abel, what was the first thing that after Adam and Eve sinned, what's the next sin recounted? Cain kills his brother. Humanity has been striking back at God through trying to destroy his image ever since the beginning. And when Jesus came, they finally had their chance. And they took it. And they struck him down. But all this, as Peter and John tell us, is because this was God's purpose before the beginning of the earth. This was God's purpose in order to bring salvation that those who trust in him 
might find refuge. So let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Help us, we pray, because we are helpless apart from your grace. Have mercy on us, O Lord, and help us to hear your voice, to believe your promises, and to put our hope in Jesus, the King who sits at your right hand. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.